0: Good morning, everyone. My name's Eric, pastor here at Trinity. So we are in our third message in our Advent series this year, We're calling it Good News, Great Joy. This title is taken from the announcement, it's really Jesus' birth announcement, by the angels in Luke chapter 2. They said, Behold, do not be afraid, for the, the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so for this series, we're looking at passages that connect the good news, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' birth, with the experience of joy. How do those things come together? First Sunday in Advent, we looked at Isaiah 52, how we can have joy in discouragement, that actually lamenting and longing leads us into the joy of the gospel. And last week, we looked at the story of Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah, who needed to go through a period of silence to find their way to joy. This morning, we're looking at how joy comes to the humble. Mary's life and Mary's song, which we just heard Annalisha read to us, shows us how joy and humility are interconnected. In fact, it shows us how joy and humility are inseparable, that they always come together. We can't have one without the other. To begin, I want to share a definition of both of those concepts, humility and joy, to make sure we're on the same page, because we're going to be referring to and talking about these things throughout the message. A few uh, weeks ago in in our series on the book of Chronicles, we talked about humility, and I shared a definition of humility then, my best shot at defining humility, and I think I have it there for you up on the screen. There it is, humility. What do I mean by humility? What do I think it is according to Scripture? It's living with an acute awareness and a full ownership of our weakness, our limitations, and our sin. I came across a new definition of humility this week by St. Teresa of Avila. She said humility is to walk in the truth just to live in an ownership of reality, the reality of who God is and the reality of who we are. Another definition that I like, humility is believing that the the three F's that are true of every human being are true in my situation and of me. Those F's are that I am fallen, I am fragile, and I am finite, just like the rest of of humanity. So that's humility. Joy, I think I think it's much harder to define joy. We know it when we experience it, but how do, we, how do we put it into words? My best definition is that joy is a deep sense of well-being, contentment, and gladness that transcends even our circumstances. So let's put these two together. If joy and humility are inseparable and interconnected, then Joy, a deep sense of well-being and contentment and gladness comes from living with an acute awareness and full ownership of our weaknesses, limitations, and sin. If we lay it out like this, we might be asking, you might be asking, well, how does that work? I'm not sure I see how joy and humility are connected. I'm so joyful that I am weak and that I am limited and sinful. That doesn't sound right. Doesn't joy come from the things that I'm proud of? Not the things I'm humbled by. The things that I achieve, the things that I acquire, the things that make me look good. Not the things that show my humble, my humbleness, my weakness, my need. Well, it is the season for Christmas, and that means many of you are getting a lot of Christmas cards in the mail. One of the things that our kids love to do is they rush out, To the mailbox every day and they bring back all the Christmas cards and they open it up and we put them up all on a wall in our house. And so they have such a frenzy of opening these things and seeing who the cards are coming from that this week they opened up a card that wasn't really intended for us. I don't even see the the envelope. I don't know who it's supposed to go to, but I'm looking at these people. I'm like, who are the Murphys? (laughs) We don't know the Murphys. I'm like, do I know these people? But they're up on our wall now. And often when people send out a Christmas card, they also send out a letter or an update on how everybody in the family's doing. And the updates are usually things that they're most proud of, right? Like I ran a marathon, I got a new job, um, moved into a new house. Here are the vacations we went on. These were awesome vacations. And here are all the accomplishments, uh, you know, that my kids have achieved this year. And you look at those, and, you know, the pictures are so perfect and everybody's happy, And you see all the things that they're proud of, and you're like, man, that's so perfect. Everybody looks so joyful. And sometimes you're like, why aren't we that joyful and amazing and imperfect like that family? What's wrong with us? Well, if you can imagine with me, instead of sending a card like that, what if we sent a humble Christmas card? And we sent a card that listed, here are the things we're most humbled by this year. These are the events and the times when we felt an acute awareness and full ownership of our weakness, limitation, and sin. Let me share some of those with you. Well, if you can imagine receiving a card like that, you might feel like, oh, this is a little weird. This is a downer. I don't understand why they're sharing this. It's very strange. Actually, I found on the Internet there was a card that went viral that was pretty much a humble Christmas card. It's from the Allen family, and here's some of the things they shared about their family. They said, Landon is our super annoying three-year-old. He whines all the time, and he doesn't sleep when he's told. Most of the artwork he brings home from the church nursery is awful. (laughs) And then there's Hunter, who just got cut from a soccer team that doesn't even keep score in their games. And Maddie, age 18, was grounded for two weeks this fall, After she snuck a guy into her room, she got fired from Sephora after telling her boss, just because I'm on the schedule doesn't mean I have to show up. That's their humble and honest Christmas card. People were really actually encouraged when they saw this card. It was going viral all over the internet. This text, Mary's song, Mary's life tells us, out of of these two cards the joyful, happy, prideful Christmas card and the humble Christmas card. The family that is closer to the great joy that God wants to give us isn't family one with the best Christmas card. It's actually, surprisingly, family two with a humble Christmas card. Frederick Buechner said this about the difference between joy and happiness. He said, happiness turns up more or less when we'd expect it to. A good marriage, a rewarding job, a pleasant vacation. Joy, on the other hand, is notoriously unpredictable as the one who bequeaths it. Joy is surprisingly, notoriously unpredictable. I think that's the lesson of Mary. The most unpredictable thing about joy is how it always shows up with humility. If you're following along and taking notes, you can turn in your outline. You'll see we have two points. We're going to look first at Mary's life and then her song. Mary's life is a model of humility. We're introduced to Mary in the preceding passage. We didn't read her introduction, but in verse 26, she's said to be a virgin or a young woman from a small town called Nazareth. And to provide some context here, a young woman at the time in the ancient Near East had very little social standing. Very little rights. And on top of that, she was from a place called Nazareth, which was just this podunk town that nobody ever heard of and nobody ever talked about. Mary then would be on the very low end of the social ladder. In verse 48, she describes herself as coming from a humble estate. And that refers not only to her inner disposition or her attitude, but also to her actual social status. Who was Mary? Mary was a nobody from nowhere. Yet, she became one of the most important people in the Bible and in all of human history. In Protestant circles, um, there's a lot of caution, a lot of confusion maybe about how we're to treat Mary. In some traditions, she's venerated and honored, and prayers are made through her. And although we don't hold to the worship of Mary or the need to uh, have her intercede on our, our behalf, if we're faithful to this text, then we should call her blessed, and we should honor her, and we should learn from her. And above all, what stands out about Mary is not that she draws all this attention to herself, but what stands out about Mary more than anything else is her humility, how she draws all the attention to God. And she shows us two things about humility. The first thing she shows us is, she shows us where we can expect to find God at work. God works in the humble places and humble people. God, he began his most important and significant work, as Luke tells us the story in all of human history, through these two women who were meeting in this text, Elizabeth and Mary came coming together. There's something very significant here in the text about the lifting up of women as models of faith in a time, as I said, when women were marginalized and were ignored. Here in a forgotten and barren Elizabeth and a young nobody from nowhere out of Nazareth, where no one expected anything, we find God's most significant and important work. Martin Luther, he wrote a long, basically a mini book. I thought it was a letter, and then I copied it all and put it into my Word document, and it was like 80 pages long. So he wrote a mini book on this text, and he said this. He said, when all seem most unlikely comes Christ and is born of the poor and lowly maiden. The rod and flower springs from her whom Sir Annas, or Caiaphas, those were the high priests, their daughter would not even have as the humblest lady's maid. Thus, God's work and God's eyes are in the depths, but man's only in the height. Where do we look for God to work? This is a challenge to me. This is a challenge, I think, to all of us in our middle and upper middle class Orange County expectations. From the very beginning, in Mary's womb, Christianity has always been a faith for the marginalized, the oppressed, those who are broken, those who are weak, those who are desperate, and those who are humble. And so I think we have to ask ourselves if everything in our lives is built around me moving away from these things, keeping these things out of my life, and moving only and exclusively toward upward mobility then we have to ask ourselves, am I moving closer to or away from where I can expect God to work? That's a tough question I've been wrestling with. Mary shows us where we can expect God to work. Mary also shows us who God can work through. We could summarize Mary's response to being chosen by God with just two words. It's like, who's... Who, sorry, it's these two words. Who, me. Who, me? This is who God uses. God uses humble people who say, who, me? God cannot use prideful people who say, of course, me. And this is one of the most important tests for whether we understand Christianity. A Christian always says in response to God's call, in response to them even being a Christian, they say, who, me? And never say, of course me. Of course I'm a Christian. Our kids' school has been working on a few plays. One of them was a Christmas play. And anytime time there's a play, there's a lot of conversation between the kids and the parents. What part are you playing in the play? Do you have this role or that role? There's the lesser roles, and then there's the starring roles. And in the drama of, of God's plan of redemption, there really is no greater human starring role than the role that Mary is playing here. God is saying to Mary, here's your role. Give birth to God in the flesh and raise him. The bigger the role that God gives, the more humble the person needs to be. Mary's role, it could have been like the ultimate party conversation stopper. If she's hanging out at a party with her friends in Nazareth, she's at a gathering and they're talking, what are you up to? What are you doing these days? And somebody might say, well, I just started my own business. It's going well. And they're like, that's good. That's good. Now, what are you doing? Well, I actually, I had uh, dinner with the high priest in Jerusalem. His family actually invited me over for dinner and say, well, that's pretty awesome. What are you doing? What's going on with your family? Well, my kid just got accepted into, like, the best rabbi school. And then it goes to Mary. Mary, what's going on? Like, what are you up to these days? Nothing. I'm just raising God. (laughs) Pretty much that's, like, mic drop right there. You can't compete with that. But Mary was the type of person whom God could use. The one who would carry, give birth, and raise Jesus had to be the most humble woman. Now, notice this. Mary didn't say, of course me. I'm exactly the kind of person that God would use. But notice she also didn't say, I'm the kind of person God can't use. I'm a nobody. I'm from nowhere. God can't use me. Because bo- both would have been rooted in pride and not humility. To say God can't use us is to limit Him by our own abilities and to say we know better than Him. Mary simply believed the word of God that was spoken to her and she received it. So in summary, Mary's life shows us God works in humble places and God works only through humble people. That's Mary's life. But how does she help us connect joy, and humility. I think that's found in her song. This song is full of biblical parallels, especially a Hannah song from 1 Samuel, the early chapter. Some are skeptical about this. How, how would Mary, this poor woman from a, from a small town, how would she had no training, how would she compose such a beautiful poem and such a rich hymn? But we see that Mary had to be soaked in Scripture. She had a love for Scripture because she's saying it out. And when she's saying it out, in response to God using her, she's saying about one of the major themes of the Bible, how joy is found in humility. I think we see from her, her song here that humility leads us to joy by changing two things deep in our souls, two things that have to change. For us to know the joy of humility, it changes what we magnify and it changes what we fear. Let's look at how it changes what we magnify. Mary's song is known as the Magnificat. And that's the Latin translation of the first word in the song in Greek. It's megalune. Mary is saying, My soul magnifies the Lord, makes the Lord great. This Mary's song is following traditional Hebrew poetry, the most common form of Hebrew. Poetry is called parallelism, where you have two lines that are saying the same thing in a different way, from a different perspective, two angles on the same reality. Mary is saying there's two things that always go together, what we magnify and our joy. 46 and 47, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The greater, Mary shows us, the greater that God becomes to us, the more joy we'll have. I think verses 46 and 47 give us some principles when it comes to how joy works. Principle one, whatever it is that our soul magnifies most is where we are looking for joy. Everyone's soul magnifies something. It's what we want to be the greatest and the biggest thing in our being. What is that? That's where we're looking for our joy. Principle two, every person has a bent towards self-magnification. One theologian, one scholar describes the gospel of Luke, the theology of sin in the gospel of Luke, as self-exaltation. We read it in our prayer of confession earlier, Luke 18, again in Luke 14. It says, whoever would exalt himself would be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So that means Scripture says that the thing by default that occupies the most space in our soul is ourselves. It's us. And that's pride. That means we believe the bigger and the greater we become in our abilities, in our importance, in our status, in our achievements, the more joyful that will be, the greater we'll become in our own soul. So principle one, whatever it is our soul magnifies most, That's where we're looking for joy. Every person is bent towards self-magnification. But thirdly, the more we try to magnify ourselves, the less joyful we become. Magnifying ourselves leaves us empty. Because you can't fill the space in our soul. You can't fill that space that is meant for God with something so small. It's like when you pick up a Christmas present that's a big, huge box. And you just can't resist the urge to, like, shake it. You shake the Christmas present and go, oh, wow, there's something bouncing around in there and rattling around in there. This is a trick. This is big package, tiny gift trick. I know what you're up to in this. That's how magnifying ourselves work. No matter how much we magnify ourselves, it's not big enough to fill the space that is meant for God alone. Even when we're at our biggest, even when we think we're at our greatest, the truth is we still shake the package and it's still rattling around. It's never big enough. It leaves us empty. It also leaves us exhausted. Self magnification means we're always putting ourselves under the magnifying glass. We're always thinking about everything in light of us. We think everything is about us. Our success, our strengths, then are exaggerated, and our failures and our shortcomings are blown up under that magnifying glass. And living that way, always living under the magnifying glass, is so exhausting. There's a story about a news anchor. He's an older news anchor, Walter Cronkite. Uh, It it said, I don't know if this is true, but one day he was sailing down a river in Connecticut with his wife uh, through a stretch of shallow water, and, and this whole boatload of young people came by, and they were all waving and shouting, and Cronkite waved back, and he said, oh, hey, how's everybody doing? And his wife said and turned to him after he waved at everybody. He so, said, do you know what they were shouting? He said, oh, yeah, of course. They were saying, hello, Walter. And his wife said, no. They were shouting, low water, low water. <laughs> it's nothing like being put in place by your wife. me you see, I share that illustration because that's how self-magnification works. It distorts our reality. Everything becomes about us, every interaction, everything we do. How did I do? Was I good enough? Was I impressive enough? Did I work hard enough? Did this conversation make me look good? What are people thinking of me right now? And when we live that way, it's so tiring, so exhausting. How does Mary's song show us how to change what we magnify? Mary shows us the path of humility. In verse 47, she she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul magnifies the Lord, verse 46. The greater God becomes in our soul, in His glory, in His holiness, the more we see our need for a Savior, then the greater joy we have in knowing Jesus This baby in Mary's womb is a big enough Savior for all our weakness, all our limitations, and all our sin. And the more that this becomes personal, the more joy we experience. Mary doesn't say, I rejoice in God the Savior. I rejoice in God who is a Savior. She says, I rejoice in God my Savior. All other approaches to life, faith-based approaches or secular approaches, would say that we're saved to find joy by proving ourselves, proving our goodness, proving that we are good enough or religious enough, proving we are great enough at what we do, at what we seek. That's how we are saved from living a joyless life. But Christianity teaches that the most Joyful people are those who are saved from always trying to prove themselves. The most joyful people are the people who have nothing to prove. That's the joy of humility. Look at what Mary says in 48 and 49. She says, God looked on me. God looked on me. He saw me, not in my greatness and goodness, but in my humility and nobody from nowhere. And all generations will call me blessed. Not because of the great things I have done, but because of the great things He has done for me. Mary's song and the rest of the Bible teaches us that underneath our desire to be magnified, underneath our pride, which can often be so ugly, is actually a legitimate human need that we were made to have met. And that is to be seen and to be looked at with approval. As significant. When one of my boys is doing something, they're riding their bike or they're hitting a baseball, they're like, look at me, Dad. Look at this home run. Look at me ride my bike. Look at this picture. There's something right about that. They're looking for the approval of their father. They want to hear, I'm significant. I matter. When adults do things and we see that what they're really doing is saying, look at me. Everybody, check me out. Aren't I great? Aren't I awesome? It's not as cute <laughs> as when kids do that. But the only way we can be saved from trying to prove ourselves to ourselves and others is if we know we're significant, if we know we're approved by someone whose voice and opinion matters more than our own voice or opinion and more than the voice and the opinions of anyone else. Now imagine if you play golf and the best golfer in the world says, you have a good swing. You have a good swing. That's going to mean a lot to you. Or if, you, if you're a singer and the, the best singer in the world, whoever you think is the best singer in the world, they say, you have a beautiful voice keep singing. Or the most talented person in your field, whatever your line of work says, you are incredible at what you do. You're better than me. That can outweigh all our self-criticism and even the criticism of other people. We say, I don't care what they think anymore because the best person told me I'm significant. I'm good enough. The gospel is that the greatest being in the universe, all-knowing, all-powerful, and wise, looks on us with favor and says, I approve. I am well-pleased. I love you, not because of how great and good you are, but because my son was born to live, to die, to rise again, to save you. Because of the greatness of my son and because your faith is in him, you are as approved, you are as significant, you are as loved by me as him. And so gospel humility completely changes what we magnify. We can let go of the need of always being great. We can let go of the need of always magnifying ourselves and know the joy of having nothing to prove. Mary's song also shows us that joy comes from changing what we fear. Instead of fearing the things that humble us in life, we fear God more than anything else. We don't fear Him from the standpoint of punishment or retribution, but He is the thing that we most revere. He is the thing that brings the greatest awe to our hearts. In verse 51 through 53, Mary gives us the reasons why we should fear God. She says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has sent the rich away empty. Now there's something about these verbs in these verses that puzzle scholars. And I'm going to get technical just for a moment, so stay with me. They're all in the arrowist tense. That means they're all in the past tense. And so people look at this and they ask, why is Mary talking about what God has done? Is this about what God has done in the past? Or is this about what God is doing now or in the future? And the best explanation I found to explain this was from the former Pope Benedict. When he was commenting on this, he said, this is a description of God's style. This is how he always works. He humbles the proud. He brings them low. He scatters their plans. He empties us of all our resources. And only then can we know the joy of Christianity. As the most humbling Of all religions, the most humbling of all belief systems. Because Christianity says we bring nothing to our salvation, so we need to be emptied. We need to be scattered. We need to be brought low. What do prideful people most fear? Prideful people most fear the thing that they most magnify about themselves becoming smaller or becoming lost altogether. But this is exactly how God reveals and heals us of our pride. He shows us his strength in verse 51 by revealing our weakness. And that's scary. Here are some of the things that I most fear in my life. Failure, acknowledging my weakness, being seen as weak, discomfort, conflict, being a nobody. But this text tells us that all these things are how God teaches us humility and leads us to joy. In order to be filled, lifted up, and put back together, I first need to be scattered and brought low and emptied. So Mary's song is telling us we don't have to fear, but we can actually welcome the things that humble us in this life. Does that scare you? It's terrifying to me. A few weeks ago when I was preaching the message on humility from Chronicles, it was very convicting to me, so I decided what I need to do is to pray a prayer that I don't want to pray. It's a prayer that I've been avoiding my entire life. And the prayer is this, God, do whatever it takes to humble me. God, do whatever it takes to teach me humility. And I'd say in the past month or so, four or five weeks since I've been praying that, God has been answering it. And it, always, it hasn't always been fun. I say, God, what are you doing? And then I go back and realize, oh, maybe it's because I'm praying this prayer. Mary says, in verse 50, the mercy of God is for those who fear him. That word mercy, it's from the Hebrew chesed, which is God's covenant faithfulness and love. Because God is faithful to us, because he has fulfilled his covenant promise to us in his son, whatever we most fear, If God allows those things into our lives, we can know with 100% confidence that he is at work in and through these things to lead us to true and lasting joy. God takes the things we're most afraid of and he reverses them and turns them upside down as occasions to show us his covenant love and mercy. And so Mary's song teaches us, That those who have nothing to fear are those who are the most joyful. In summary, Mary's song is a celebration. It's an introduction to the whole gospel. In Mary's song, she's saying, God is here. God is coming in this little baby. He is about to humble the whole world. So the prideful better get ready. But how... Is God going to humble the world? The answer is surprising. The answer is shocking because it's through God humbling himself. By God being born from a woman who was nobody in the middle of nowhere. Why? Why did God humble himself to enter the womb of Mary? To take on our humanity to be put on trial by us, to be mocked by us, to be beaten, to suffer and die. Why would God, the God of the universe, humble himself like this and endure such humbling weakness and suffering and pain and limitations? It's so that in Jesus, we would know the joy of living like we have nothing to prove. It's so that in Jesus we would know the joy of living like we have nothing to fear. So rejoice. Rejoice in him. Please pray with me.